Hello, and welcome back to the Sidekick Critic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby, and I am delighted to have you here with me for episode 26 of this Film and Entertainment Industry Podcast. Once again, follow me on my socials, TikTok and Instagram at Sidekick Critic. Follow me on Letterboxd at Sidekick Critic. If I'm not posting on Instagram and TikTok, I promise you I'm still updating my movies on Letterboxd. I'm on there with every single movie I watch. I'm getting more frequent about including two, three-sentence little review blurbs on movies. Uh, I rate them. I'll often do lists, whatever it may be. If you're curious what movies I'm watching, if you're looking for something to watch, follow me on Letterboxd at Sidekick Critic. I have a fun episode today. I have no rapid fire. I'm not covering a whole bunch of movies or topics. I have only three things I'm going to talk about today. Uh, the box office, Taylor Swift, and the movie I've been most excited for for a long time, Killers of the Flower Moon. So we're going to start with Box Office 101 because it has come to my attention that I use a lot of terms and I talk about the box office with a industry-specific knowledge that I have not explained and that people listening may not know those terms or know them within the context that I do. So I'm going to break down the box office a little bit and try to get you to a similar level to how I understand it. And that way, when I talk about it in the future, you're not lost or zoning out for those segments. So we're going to start in Box Office 101 with terms to know. These are terms I've used frequently and will continue to use that I've never quite explained. So let's begin with the markets of a movie's release. Uh, I'll use three terms to discuss these. The first is domestic. That refers to the box office in the United States and Canada. This is for, of course, uh, movies made in the domestic market. Their domestic is United States and Canada. For the purposes of release schedule and how films look at their earnings, they consider the United States and Canada one market. International refers to everywhere else. Uh, the box office outside the U- United States. Some of those biggest markets outside the United States include the UK, France, Australia, Mexico is a very large market. Asia is a massive market when you look at China, Japan, South Korea, and all those come together to form the worldwide. I'll often call it the worldwide gross as that's the total money movies making across all of its markets. Uh, Dividing these is for a number of purposes. I'll touch on some of those purposes as I go through these terms here. One thing that's interesting to note, though, is frequently a movie will be released in its domestic market before international. Um, It may be certain laws or agreements with theaters there, but a movie is typically available in the domestic market first. I like to look at the worldwide gross when looking at how well a movie is done. I think that tells the full picture of how successful a movie is, while domestic is very specific in telling you how specific it is here. That comes down to each person that's talking about it and looking at the numbers. I like the worldwide, but the domestic is arguably more important because you may have heard me talk about a film's opening weekend. Opening weekend is the box office uh, earnings for a film's first weekend in theaters. But the caveat with that is that only applies to its domestic release. That only applies to how much money it's making in the United States and Canada that first weekend. I think part of that comes down to a number of reasons. One, it makes it easier for comparing movie to movie that you're looking at the same number of theaters, the same release window and timing, and that it's all just the domestic market when it goes to a wide release. 
Also because, as I mentioned, international is typically a couple days later, so or it varies. So for one movie when, you know what, it actually opened earlier internationally, it's going to have a larger worldwide weekend than another movie where international didn't come out for a week after. So when you look at only domestic on opening weekend, it allows them to align better for a historical and uh, contextual reasons. Opening weekend is a very interesting number to look at typically because it can compare how movies have done that come out the same month but different years that are movies within the same franchise. It can give you a good gauge on what interest is for a movie, how interest is changing for a franchise, and just allow you to compare movies across multiple years, especially you have to adjust for inflation as movie tickets get more expensive. But the opening weekend is something that I always look for. Whenever a new movie comes out, I'm looking at the opening weekend number because it's a great gauge of the initial success of a movie. Um, that may be a given, but that's why I talk about a movie's opening weekend so much. And if I get a podcast out on a new release, I'm going to talk about its opening weekend numbers and compare it. Uh, I'll do that very frequently for comic book movies because those have a uh, rush factor and not wanting to get spoiled factor where they typically see a much larger opening weekend and then a steep drop off later in the release because everyone wants to see it right away. I think that kind of started with uh, Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame where no one wanted these massive movies spoiled, so everyone rushed to the theater the opening weekends. Um, but that's opening weekend. I rambled a little bit there, but it's, these are terms I use frequently, so it's very easy for me to just go on and on and talk about them at length because I read them all the time, I see them all the time, and I understand them very well to where I typically don't even think about them. I just know that term within its context. One thing to consider when looking at an opening weekend, though, is to make sure you're looking at a film's wide release as opposed to its limited release. What's the difference there? So a limited release is when a movie is initially put out in only specific markets. Typically, they're the big markets that are Los Angeles and New York uh, before the movie is expanded across uh, the United States and Canada. There's a number of reasons movies will do this. Sometimes it's specific agreements that a distributor has with theaters, chains, whatever it may be. Sometimes it's to uh, generate some buzz for a movie. Sometimes it's for critics to be able to get out and see the movie before it gets its wide release. Whatever it may be, this seems to be becoming more common for smaller movies, though some big movies will do it as well. Recently, I talked about it with Gran Turismo, that was supposed to come out in early August, they delayed the wide release and switched to a limited release schedule as they couldn't have the stars Orlando Bloom and David Harborough out there promoting the movie. So instead they said, we're going to put this out in the biggest markets and some additional markets with limited showtimes a couple weeks in advance leading up to the full release so that the movie generates some buzz, gets a positive word of mouth, and people talk about it. So when we finally put it in 4,000 theaters across the country, people are excited to see it. So there is some credence to why a limited release is done. Mentioned it a few times while explaining limited, we also have a wide release, and that's when the movie is released throughout the entirety of the United States and internationally. I believe the max theaters I've seen for a movie's wide release is somewhere in the low 4,000 number. Um, that wide release is essentially saying now is when you're going to start looking at the box office. Now is when you're going to compare the movie to 
other movies, you're going to look at the opening weekend. We're going to see how well the movie continues to perform and it's out there. If you want to see it, you can go see it likely at the whatever theater is closest to you. So limited and wide release. Um, both of those uh, apply for the all types of market, domestic, international, the worldwide. And it's the wide release when we look at the opening weekend. That's where that first batch of terms kind of uh, intersects and interacts with each other, where they overlap. After a movie has had its wide release, it's been in theaters for a couple weeks, we begin to talk about a movie's legs. And the legs refer to how well the movie does over time. A movie that continues to earn money and perform very well has great legs versus a movie that has steep drop-offs and is out of the zeitgeist, so to say, after a week has bad legs. This year, Barbie had great legs. Even a month after it, people were still going to theater in pink. It was still making money hand over fist each weekend, being the number one movie for, I think it was six weeks straight. That movie had great legs. It continued to earn and earn and earn. Or you have something like Ant-Man and the Wasp, which had terrible legs. It's after the first weekend, the initial rush of Marvel fans, the movie had a steep drop off did not have good word of mouth. People were not excited to go see it. They weren't talking about it. So it earned far less money than anyone expected. Bad legs. But how do we quantify that? How do we judge what the legs on a movie are? And that's where there's a, an equation and term called multiplier. And what multiplier is, it's you take a movie's, the total amount a film has earned, whether it be two weeks or two months, and you divide that by the film's opening, its initial opening. And that tells you, okay, the opening weekend earned this much, and that applies out over this stretch. And you get a number that's a, a, very, a movie with very good legs. You'll see a multiplier of four or five, meaning it repeated its biggest weekend four or five times. It's that's where something like Ant-Man the Wasp had terrible legs and that it had such a steep drop off. But Oppenheimer has able to keep its premium formats, PLFs, premium large formats, and continue to earn money week after week after week. The higher total movie has typically means better legs unless it's something that had a massive opening weekend and then vanished completely from theaters. These are all movies, are all terms for movies that have been released that are out as I'm tracking the box office. Tracking, though, is a specific term when looking at the box office that uh, you've made me maybe heard me mention for movies that are upcoming, saying it's tracking very well or it's tracking poorly. That comes down to people and publications that look at specific theaters and see how well it looks like a movie is doing before it's released. They'll pull up a theater, they'll say, okay, this theater has 20 screens, 50% of those screens are for Barbie, and within those 10 screens, 30 plus show times, 65% of tickets are sold out at this average ticket price. We know that's a per theater average of this, and then they multiply it out and they expand that data, they use a margin of error, and you see, you can get a prediction on what a movie is going to do opening weekend. That's how it's tracking. I don't follow close enough to do that. I think those people have box office as a much larger hobby of theirs where or interest, where for me, it's an auxiliary interest to what is just movies and watching movies in theaters. It's a lot of work to track that. You have to 
some publications can get the numbers directly from theaters or chains, chains, but I've seen a lot of people who do it themselves for fun and they have to look at every single showtime for a movie at a specific theater to see how well it looks like it's doing. And in hand with that tracking is a movie's word of mouth. Movies are typically screened well before they're even limited release to certain members of the press or at festivals, and you'll start hearing a buzz for it and people talk about it. Then you get a limited release and even more people are talking about it. Opening weekend hits, the movie does really well. It has what we call a great word of mouth, meaning people are walking out of the theater and they're talking about this movie. And word of mouth does a lot for how well a movie will do after its opening weekend. Again, Mario. For example, let's switch up our uh, movie we're talking about here, had great word of mouth. Families loved it. Kids loved it. The Peaches song blew up. Everyone was talking about it. It stayed at number one for over a month, I believe, because it just, everyone loved it. And they're saying, you have to go see Mario. You played it as a kid. What do you have to lose? And that positive word of mouth caused the movie to become a billion dollar movie and just generate more and more money. And the flop example that I keep using for negative word of mouth is Ant-Man and the Wasp. People came out of that movie, they didn't love it, they think it was one of the bottom tier Marvel movies, one of the worst in years, and it was getting kind of panned, so they were sick of it, and they said, well, you know what, Marvel's kind of lost its edge, and bad word of mouth, bad box office following that opening weekend. Those are all the terms I think are most important to know when talking about the box office. Um, it's it's a lot. It's, I know them because I read about them constantly and I know them within context. But I think with these terms and an explanation for them now given, I can probably start having a box office segment on most of my episodes because I find it very interesting. There's new movies coming out every single weekend. So there's a new opening weekend tally every week. We can compare that to the same month or week historically looking back previous years and see where movies rank all time and you can also stay updated and know when theaters are making money or losing money and when you look at money profitability it's you may have heard me mention it we look at we're looking for two and a half times a movie's production budget so if a movie costs 100 million dollars to make you'd like to see the box office be somewhere around 250 million dollars to say it's profitable now that varies because there are other sources of revenue for a movie outside of just its box office. There's video on demand, there's licensing, there's merchandising that a studio can allot to saying, okay, this movie ended up being profitable for us. But we look at two and a half times specifically because that production budget does not include uh, either back-end profits, whether an actor or director is getting money in the back-end of a movie based on what it makes, nor does it include marketing costs. The marketing costs are separate, and on a big blockbuster movie, that can range from uh, as little as $100 million up to $150, $200 million, because ads are very expensive. To get commercial spots during Sunday NFL Sunday night football is not cheap. It costs a lot of money and the studios have to pay for that so that their movie is in front of eyeballs. And that's where the profitability of a movie gets very interesting and why I always say that benchmark is two and a half. For so long, I thought, oh, a movie cost $100 million and made $110 million. That's a profit. It's not because there's so much more 
a studio or distributor spends money on outside of just the production of the film that is not included in that production budget. Let's talk about distributors. I just mentioned it. There are two aspects to a movie getting into theaters. There's the production company or companies, and then there's the film distributor. Sometimes those align. You have Marvel movies, for example, are produced by Marvel Studios, a subsidiary of Disney, and they're distributed by Disney. So that line gets a little fuzzy there, but other times you have production companies making their own movies and someone else distributing it. Killers of the Flower Moon is a good example where it's produced by Apple, distributed in part by Paramount, uh, or Barbie. Barbie's a great example because there's been uh, reports about a specific meeting regarding Barbie and its distribution. So Mattel owns the rights to Barbie's Barbie. They're the toy company. They had a movie in pre-production for years, but never really got off the ground running until finally the movie rights arrived at Lucky Chap Entertainment, Margot Robbie's production company. And they went out, they hired writers in Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. Eventually they got Greta Gerwig to sign on as the director for the film, and they needed someone to distribute it because they are solely a movie production company. They are not dealing with theaters and getting it in front of screens or deciding when it's going to go to streaming, whatever it may be. Margot Robbie, in a now infamous meeting, sat down with Warner Brothers Discovery and said, you know, this could be a billion dollar movie. And she has said after the fact that she was kind of joking when she said it. She was just pitching her movie, trying to get someone to pick it up and put it in front of theaters. And Warner Brothers decided to do it and it ended up being one over $1.6 billion. So a distributor and a producer are different. And you can kind of see that when a movie first starts, you get all of the company logos and whatever titles, whatever it may be, typically the distributors first. And those are the big studios you see, the Disney's, Warner Brothers, Paramount. And then you get the production companies. Like I said, there's big studios where it aligns. You have DC and Warner Brothers within the same umbrella company. Or you have something like A24 on a smaller scale where they will produce a movie and they will distribute it themselves. As they get bigger and bigger, they're distributing more of their own movies. That is a lot of information dump. I think the key takeaways are really the difference between a distributor and a production company. And a lot of those terms I mentioned at the beginning, specifically the opening weekend being domestic only. That's something I did not know for a very long time, but once I started looking into it, I was like, oh, and a lot of equations and like the multiplier uses domestic only numbers because when you add international in, it becomes too many variables. Certain movies are not screened in certain markets or certain movies have more markets and it's hard to compare those international numbers and that worldwide gross. So we look at domestic only really when comparing movies. I hope. This has been informative for you. This was a lot of box office talk. I kind of went on for a while, longer than I expected, but I have a lot of knowledge in this and it's not something I've had to share. I typically just use it. So it is fun to kind of break it down and share those terms. I hope now when I talk about the box office, you have a little bit of a better understanding. Moving on, as I said, the next topic today that I'm going to talk about is going to be Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour concert film. I don't know what I can really say about this that hasn't been said already, what I can even say about Taylor Swift that hasn't already been said. 
I was fortunate enough that I got to see the Aeros tour in person at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa and hands down the best concert of my life, an incredible performance. And it really, for me, set sky high expectations once she announced she was doing the movie. I couldn't do what I always try to say is leave my expectations at the door. I went into this with a bias, expecting it to be great. And I was not let down. It delivered on truly every front. Uh, what I was most impressed by and my biggest takeaway is the ability of the movie to showcase the grand scale of this tour. She's performing in front of 70,000 plus people on a massive stage in football stadiums. But at the same time, it brought you in close for a number of intimate moments that you missed when you're sitting in the 300s at the show. Uh, that level of production, she used the entirety of that massive stage. I think it was about as long as a football field, maybe a little bit shorter, and she used almost every inch of it. It was at the top, all the way down to the bottom, back and forth, in between, for the entirety of the show, all three hours. And that's where I'm talking about the scale. It, it brought you out. It had some great, what I presume were drone footage shots, showing the screens behind her, the crowd, her dancing across the stage, it filled with dancers and her band. And I, I really enjoy seeing that scale as that's the view I got of the show. And then for each, almost every song, it brought you in close. You got to see the dancers up close. You got to know that they were telling a story. All the little interactions Taylor has with each of her dancers were really delightful moments to view. This, like I said, it's the best concert I've ever seen. And this really just proved that she is the most iconic performer of my generation. It's I think she's right up there with, if not better than Michael Jackson in terms of being a pure performer. This was three hours straight of her singing and dancing on this massive stage. And she did that three nights a weekend for eight months. I don't think I could do that one night ever, let alone do it 80 times over the course of eight months. It's an impressive physical feat and an impressive logistical feat to bring this all together and to get it to go off consistently without a hitch with the most minor hiccups possible. As I talked about, uh, Taylor Swift was kind of a convergence of multiple hobbies for me because it's a movie now. It was a concert of an artist I thoroughly enjoy and it was a box office phenomenon. Uh, everyone was very excited when this was announced and saw what it did on the AMC website and the predictions, and it did not disappoint. Uh, it opened, its opening weekend was to the tune of $92 million. That is the second highest October weekend ever behind only Joker. It's Taylor Swift is now stamped her name firmly in the record books for the box office on top of countless other records. It's exciting for movies and theaters and AMC specifically to have struck this deal and to know they will likely look for more opportunities such as this in the future. I think these auxiliary uh, showings that theaters can put on outside of just typical new release movies is a really big opportunity for theaters to get more people there and to create what I'm calling movie events. And this is absolutely one of them like Barbenheimer was where people are showing up to the theater 
you knew everyone there was seeing the same thing. We were all there to see Taylor Swift, people dressed up, and you can feel an energy within the theater that was really exciting and I want to see more of. I love when I show up to a theater and I know people are seeing the same thing of me. I think it adds to the experience of whatever you're seeing. People are laughing more. They're more invested. They're enjoying it more because they know everyone else there wants to be there just as bad as they do. Maybe not just as bad as me, but they want to be there very badly. And the movie experience for Taylor Swift was great. Uh, It was a blast for someone like me who's typically kind of a stickler about theater etiquette. For a concert, I was able to let it go. I was able to sing at a respectable volume in my seat. I was able to dance along. I was able to talk to the people with me about the concert as it was unfolding, which it was exciting. It was nice to be able to talk about it and not be worried. Throughout the movie at different points, people would stand up and dance for their favorite songs, or they would interact as there's multiple points in the show where Taylor wants the audience to interact with her, and people would do that within the theater. It was one of the better movie theater experiences I think I've had in terms of just pure fun. It was a blast. If you're at all slightly a fan of Taylor Swift, this is worth seeing in theaters because the production value on it is insane and it's such a good time. I've seen TikToks of people now that are getting empty theaters to themselves with them and one friend and they're using the whole theater to dance and sing and have a good time or they go with a crowd of people and they do the same thing. It's The Eras Tour concert film is truly great. And I can't talk about it. I can't do it justice without creating another ranking. So without further ado, I'm going to give a ranking of the Eras Tour Eras. Now, this is my specific ranking for the Eras Tour sets within the context of the concert specifically, because it's a very different ranking when I look at the albums and the Eras on their own. So let's dive in. Here's my Eras Tour Eras ranking. And last place at number nine, Speak Now. While this album has grown on me grown on me a lot since its Taylor's version re- release, the concert film only had one song. And while Enchanted was great, if it only has one song, it has to be at the bottom, I think. A surprise for me, at number eight was Folklore. The sets on this, the dances, didn't really blow me away, despite the fact that Folklore has... One of my top three Taylor songs, multiple songs within my top 10. I love the album, but the Eras Tour set didn't quite blow me his way away as much as the others did. And number seven is Lover. This was kind of hard to put down that far because it was such a great opening. Uh, Miss Americana and the Heartbreak Prince right into Cruel Summer, which has become a phenomenon, has been re-released as a single and has risen to number one on the Hot 100. So impressive. A cannon blast to start the show but i think the other sets were just better at number six is red the music she chose for red were none of them are my favorite songs on red there's other songs especially from the vault on taylor's version that i like a lot more but red falls into the sixth place because during 22 it was a tradition for her to give her hat to a fan at every show and that was just a delight to see up close and personal that little girl had her life made just from getting that hat. So I really enjoyed getting that experience and seeing it up close. At number five, Fearless. Fearless was a great set. It's got some of her most iconic songs with the sparkles, the glittery dress, the guitar, to hear a theater full and a stadium full of 70,000 people singing along to Love Story and You Belong With Me. 
It's an iconic performance. It's great. I loved it. Fearless falls at five solely because I think the other sets were slightly better. And number four, 1989. Uh, while the songs she's played from 1989 are probably her most overplayed songs, if there are any, uh, they're all guilty pleasure songs for me. I love singing along and dancing to them. The energy is just so high. And I think that was really a turn for the theater audience where everyone said, okay, we're having an absolute blast now. And number three, Midnight's. Her longest set on the concert, her most recent album. I love this album. It was the first one to be released as I've been a Taylor Swift fan. So I, I think Midnight's was a great set. Multiple different outfits during this set. And the energy was great. A fantastic way to close out the Eras tour with her most recent era. At number two, Evermore. Uh, Evermore is a stunning set with a lot of variations to it. You have Willow where it has this witchy vibe to it with the glowing orbs and the song grows on me every time I hear it. And then she goes to the piano for Champagne Problems, which is the perfect song to play on the piano and has become a crowd favorite as she sings that and is a one of her best performances in the show, I think. And then to, I believe, the Evermore set ends with Tolerate It which is just striking. Uh, the table, the dancing, the story it tells. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of Tolerate It as a song until I saw this performance and I was like, wow, this was spectacular. I, it's Evermore has grown on me quite a bit. There's a joke that it's her most forgotten album. I don't think that's the case because I love it every time I see it. But at number one is Reputation. Um, the common thing has become to scream, take me to church when those lights go off and Taylor goes in. And it's understandable because the reputation era um, was the pinnacle of what Taylor Swift can do and the scale of this show. I loved it. I loved those songs. It was such high energy. It was so much fun. Um, yeah, reputation, my number one Taylor Swift eras tour era. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to give this a typical rating because it's different than most other movies, but I really did enjoy this. My letterboxed rating for Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour concert film is five stars. Like I said, if you're all, at all a fan of Taylor Swift, go see this in theaters. All right. I just have one more movie to talk about today. I referred to this as my Super Bowl before seeing it over the weekend. Here's my review for Killers of the Flower Moon. This movie tells the story of the Osage Indian murders in Oklahoma from the 1910s to the 1930s, and it blew me away, and the more I think about this movie and talk about it, the more it has just really stuck with me, and my opinion of it and my view of it balloons to be even better. Um, <clears throat> some quick points. First off, Martin Scorsese, the director, an iconic American filmmaker, absolutely still at the top of his game. Uh, Lily Gladstone, my introduction to her, really her grand scale introduction. She is a force to be reckoned with, a fantastic performance. Leonardo DiCaprio continues to put out some of his best work, A one of the most iconic actors of my lifetime. And then Robert De Niro absolutely delivers as he's been acting for 60 years and has still got it. Uh, let's start with Martin Scorsese. Um, the director for this film, uh, the first thing I need to acknowledge is this is a three and a half hour movie, 
but it eats up the screen for all three and a half hours. You're invested, you're intrigued, you want to keep watching, you don't want it to end. Uh, the ability to not have a single moment where you're like, I'm bored for three and a half hours is a testament to the amazing filmmaking. The Oklahoma landscape and the Osage Reservation is beautifully showcased. The cinematography is top-notch as it typically is with Scorsese. Um, the score keeps your heartbeat going. It keeps you drawn to the movie and tied into it, going with it as it ebbs and flows while keeping this, like I said, this consistent level of intrigue. It may not peak with ultra-high moments such as Oppenheimer and the uh, bomb test, but it never has a dull moment. It never has a moment where like, okay, I didn't need this. You could have cut this. All three and a half hours are absolutely needed. And then the story, the story of the Osage people and how incredibly sad it is and how they were taken advantage of and brutally murdered is powerful. A couple of the murders are truly cold-blooded and really disturbing and some of the most disturbing murders I've seen predicted knowing they're true. And there's so many scenes like that that have really struck me. Uh, one scene featuring Indian ancestors is one of the most beautiful and heartwarming scenes I've seen in a movie all year. It uh, brought me, brought such a big smile to my face in the middle, middle of this dark movie. And it was a really fitting, short, brief change of pace that is what kind of sets the movie apart from other movies I've seen this year and why it's one of my favorites. And then the way the OSH people react to each brutal murder and questionable death. It's just such raw, powerful emotion. Everything about this movie feels real, like truly real. It's so well based in its history. It's so well done by Scorsese. I I, am, I think he plans on doing at least one more movie and it'll be a sad day when he eventually retires from filmmaking because he's up there with Spielberg, I think they're the top two directors of my lifetime, and I don't think anyone will touch them for a long time. And you'll look at their filmographies and what they've done and how the industry has changed. The two of them just don't miss from what I've seen. I've not seen any everything from either of them, but I've seen a lot of their movies, and they are spectacular. This is going to start me on a Martin, Martin Scorsese kick with his movies. Shutter Island is top of my list to watch next, but classics like The Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman, Goodfellas, The Departed, he is one of the most iconic filmmakers, and Killers of the Flower Moon really drove that point home for me and has convinced me that while I loved some of his movies but haven't watched all of them, now I feel the need to watch all of them because this is just spectacular. I mentioned a number of actors, and the acting in this movie is it's maybe the best acted movie I've ever watched, if I'm being honest. And let's break down why I say that. Uh, to start, Lily Gladstone as Molly Burkhart is able to be reserved and stoic to where you're dying to get inside her head. You're dying to know what it is she's thinking, but she just keeps it all in. And then at the flip of a switch, it's an outpour of pure raw emotion that you feel connected to you can feel what she's feeling and uh what a performance from uh lily gladstone i was blown away to be sharing a screen at times with leonardo dicaprio and robert de niro and to be dominating the screen you are focusing on lily gladstone while she's sitting right next to leonardo dicaprio 
she carries that much weight and presence into this story and into this movie that I I cannot wait for award season because I think she is fully deserving of every award. Now there's still some movies to come out. I've heard a lot of buzz, of course, about Emma Stone and Poor Things, but uh, I don't know how anything is going to change my opinion that Lily Gladstone gave us the best performance of the year in a movie, male or female. This was a stunning performance. Kudos to her. I'm I'm going to have to watch this again because I need to see all the minute details she put into this performance. It was, I'm almost at a loss for words because it was that good. Talk about Robert De Niro, De Niro acting for 60 years. In this movie, he plays Robert Hale, Robert King Hale, and is as good as he's ever been, in my opinion. Uh, able to play this dark and dangerous character, but at times you fully buy into the facade he puts on and who he portrays himself to be. You believe he buys it, though you know that's not the case. It's terrifying and disturbing, yet expertly done. I saw him, I think the last movie I watched with him was The Irishman, the last Scorsese movie at least. And this, while he's great in The Irishman, this movie, this performance blows that out of the water. It's my favorite De Niro performance because... There's something about him that his presence is felt even in the scenes he's not in because that's just how he portrays his character. I think the in the context of the mo- this movie, the character William King Hale was written for Robert De Niro. I don't know of any actor that could have portrayed it as menacingly yet as deceptively as he did. It's a great performance. Another one that is a strong contender for best supporting actor in a very tough field with Robert uh, Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer and Ryan Gosling and Barbie. You can't talk about this movie without talking about Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart and the ambiguity with which he plays Ernest and how he toes the line of idiocy and complacency and makes you question his every action and how much thought is really put into it. And even at the end, you're left wondering what's the truth? Where does his character really fall? And Ernest is kind of the driving force of the plot for this movie. We kind of follow his character as everything happens and his character's decisions and how they affect everything. It's Leo is still at the top of his game. He, I don't know if I've ever seen a bad Leonardo DiCaprio performance. The Killers of the Flower Moon is no different. It's, striking really what the three stars are able to do and the scenes where you get all three of them at the same time you can feel every scene where you get just one or two of them you're waiting you can't wait to see all three of them and where their paths cross and intersect and even when it's just two of them conversations between leo and de niro uh ernest and hale are spectacular you are wrapped into what they are saying and then you add Lily Gladstone as Molly Burkhart into those scenes and your focus shifts to her and what is she thinking about this conversation how is it affecting her what does she really believe whose side is she on um the acting especially from the three stars is great but I would be remiss to not also mention Jesse Plemons he shows up in the third act of the movie as the Bureau of Investigation um 
agent to investigate these Osage murders and turns this movie that has been slowly chugging along, but at not like a boring slow pace and turns it blistering to where you have to fully pay attention. You have to know what's happening. And while uh, Lily, Leo and De Niro all have a dominating presence on the screen, if it's just them, Clement's character is always standing over you. It feels as though when he's in the background of a scene, you can feel him watching the movie over your shoulder and the ability, he doesn't need to stand in the ring and throw punches for 10 rounds with these Titans in the industry, but he's the referee. You're aware of his presence when he's there at all times. He's impossible to forget. You see him right there and you feel that presence. It's a hard role to be put in, to be put alongside Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro and where Lily Gladstone comes in and fights for 10 rounds. Jesse Plemons is right there being the referee, making sure these fights go on. And this is kind of, I don't know why I've gone so deep with this boxing analogy. It just felt appropriate for what Jesse Plemons did in this movie. The last thing I'll touch on is the ending of this movie. I, I thought about doing a spoiler section, but I don't want to spoil it at all. At first, the ending struck me as weird with how Scorsese took a conventional movie ending and flipped it on its head and did it his own way. But the more I think about it, the more I I loved it. It was unique. It was different. I've never seen an end like it. I think this will be one of my favorite endings of a movie ever. I You can kind of hear me coming to a loss for words in this movie because... As I talk about it and as I think about it, I, I like it and I love it more and more because I, I have no faults in this movie. I cannot find one. Even in a movie I loved like Oppenheimer and Barbie, I can find some faults here and there. I can't find a fault in Kills of the Flower Moon. I It's hard to rate a movie like this because I frequently said I don't know if any movie is a perfect 10 out of 10. It's hard for a movie to be truly perfect, but when a three and a half hour movie feels quicker, doesn't feel three and a half hours because the story is so good, the cinematography, the acting, every single aspect of it is great. And then it caps it off with an ending that instantly I feel the need to talk about. And Abby and I talked about for 15 minutes in our entire drive home. This is going to be as close to a 10 ever and retroactively it may get bumped up. Right now, I'm going to pick a rating that I think I will I will be watching this movie a second time this year before I rate all my movies for the year so I can know for sure. Right now, Killers of the Flower Moon is getting a 9.8 out of 10. A spectacular movie, a must-watch in theaters movie. I was blown away. It's an astonishing, gorgeous, perfect film. And that's the last I have for today. Uh, go see Killers of the Flower Moon in theaters. It is worth three and a half hours in the theater, 100%. Uh, Taylor Swift, if you're at all, at all a fan, you should see that. But Killers of the Flower Moon, if you're going to only see one thing, is the perfect theater movie. It keeps your attention so well. Um, next week, I'm going to be back here for a special edition episode of all Halloween, all spooky, whatever it may be. I'm very excited for that. So stay tuned. I have a ton of movies to talk about there. Once again, follow me on all my socials, Instagram, TikTok, mainly Letterboxd, at Sidekick Critic. 
keep up to date with everything I'm doing and all the movies I'm watching. And I look forward to talking about spooky season with you. This has been the Sidekick Critic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby. See you next time.